0: Hi, and welcome back to OA on Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kayen Isaacson. This week, we have 3 2, one go with Cosmo Massaro, an interview with Joshua Kraft of the Patriots Foundation and the Boys and Girls Club of Boston, and in two minutes with Tom, we're talking legislative oversight hearings in DC. First up, 3 2, one
1: go. Let's talk about something important. Welcome to 321 Go on OA on Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, a new report says Boston's rush hour traffic is the worst in the nation. How could this happen? Maybe we should build a tunnel under Boston or a highway in the sky. We'll discuss. And it's a rude awakening for millions of Americans who are finding their federal tax refunds for 2018 have shrunk. Is GOP led tax reform unfairly hitting them in the pocket? Or do they need just to do the math on the fine print from their paychecks? Finally, there's a labor movement taking hold in American media organizations. Our own Suzanne Morris will help sort it all out. Joining me here on 321 Go is. Kyanne Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA on Air. Cayenne, we're, we're plowing our way through the, uh, the winter here, no pun intended. It's been kind of mild, but here we are as we record today, and there's a wintry mix out there.
0: There is a wintry mix. That oh, is a good name for it. A
1: wintry mix. It's a midday wintry mix. People are freaking out about the afternoon commute. People are getting sent home. Yes. It's all happening.
0: The Globe uh, actually wrote a story about if you are commuting... Here's when you should leave. Exactly. It's important stuff. It's in New
1: England. All we right.
0: never know what to do until it comes. Let's hit it.
1: All right, Cayenne. New report says Boston has the worst rush hour gridlock in the U.S. Stop the presses. Stop the presses. It actually is news. <laughs> We've we, we, we have ranked high in these annual or or, or semi regular reports from a transportation data firm called in but this year they changed the methodology and focus not just on or not on all day traffic where la has been number one but rush hour morning and afternoon morning and evening rush hour and there we are um number one a boston globe story jim rooney from the greater boston chamber of commerce says we like beating la but not necessarily in this category but a boom there's your snare drum um Catchy. Catchy. What do you think? He also said in
0: a quote, it demands attention, which is so true.
1: (laughs) Hey, let's build a tunnel under the city. Wait, didn't we already do that? We did that $20 billion later. (laughs) How about a highway in the sky? I think we did that too. We had one of those for 50 years. We knocked it down. You know what? We We have a tunnel underground. Now let's build a highway in the sky.
0: Maybe both. That was the problem. It couldn't be either or. We need both.
1: That's right. These are all the... Knee-jerk reaction jokes that circulated around the Union Associates' office this morning. Yes. And now we are bringing them to the podcast. <laughs> Reality, though, here, um, Boston has an old an old uh, network of streets. It's, it's, it's difficult um, for a city like Boston, which is so tightly compacted, to absorb excess traffic, to absorb all that. Um, Transportation Secretary of Massachusetts Stephanie Pollock says, hey, hold on a second. This study may be flawed, and in fact, th- th- there are indications that the methodology is not perfect. She says what people care about most is the total commute time, not necessarily that the speed limit's 55 and right now I'm only going 20, as long as they get home in a reasonable reasonable amount of time. That makes sense, except it still is pretty, pretty cruddy to sit there in your car, just waiting, uh, going nowhere. It's also what's interesting. This massive tunnel is underground.
0: What's interesting is rush hour spans such a large portion of the day now, too. We can't get away from that. It is no longer number one, it's not an hour. You can start sitting in traffic before six AM coming into the city, depending on where you're coming from. And at the end of the day, Traffic starts at like two in the afternoon.
1: Yeah, it's brutal, and I, I, I've got it easy. You know, I, I just live in the in the in the sort of inner ring of suburbs, so I can come in the easy way, like on Storrow Drive and Memorial Drive, which is like the nicest commute you can have.
0: Except when you're calling Storrow Drive
1: easy, you know that we've. got we, you, I know you know we've got it bad. The poor the poor folks in the South Shore are just they have no hope coming in. It's and bad. Then, and then going out, going home at two, two, three, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, it starts. It's brutal. Yeah. So it's a tough situation.
0: I live south of the city, yep. and if I leave between five and six, I'm looking at easily an hour and a half
1: home. That's a long, long time.
0: Whereas on a Sunday afternoon with no traffic, which don't even get me started that now there's traffic all the time on the weekends too, it should take me twenty five to thirty minutes.
1: Fortunately, we can rely on our state of the art, first rate, premium public transportation system to carry some of that burden. But I'm. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, honestly, no solutions here today, folks. No, no just, solutions. Just some complaints. Just wisecracks and commentary that, oh, Boston has the worst gridlock. We won. And there we go. We win. We win. All right. Thanks. Uh, uh, uh,
2: is a jam.
1: Uh, 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 is a All right, Kyan, it's a rude awakening for millions of Americans who are doing their 2018 tax returns right now because... 2018? Yeah. Yeah, 2018. 2018? Yeah, 2018.
0: Oh, yeah, because 2018 for 2019. Sorry. I thought I was just being smart, but I was just being obnoxious. No,
1: no. Should we start should we start again or can I just continue to be <laughs> completely I just totally forgot what year it was. By, no no you gave me you gave me a tilted head <laughs> I cross-eyed did. look. I did. Tilted head cross-eyed. Like I caught like, you doing something. <laughs> yeah, okay. Anyway. My apologies. That's fine. The refund uh, tax refunds are going to be less than expected. Uh, as they own, many people owe money to the IRS for the first time after years of receiving refunds or are getting a much smaller refund, there's a whole social media campaign, hashtag GOP tax scam, because they're blaming President Trump and the Republicans for shrinking their refunds because of a major overhaul of the tax code in December 2017. Washington Post reports on this pretty comprehensively. And... Uh, The reality is the majority of americans actually received a tax cut in 2018. some did not some people are seeing their taxes go up but a majority of americans the tax policy center says eighty percent had a tax cut so what's the issue well a big part of the issue cayenne is that people aren't doing the math in many cases in many cases right they are experiencing a small incremental reduction in their withholding that means they're not really noticing that their paycheck either weekly or bi-weekly is a little bit bigger real dollar amount you're about to ask i don't know but a little bit bigger it could be five dollars it could be 50 it could be 25 whatever it may be fewer uh, uh the withholding is lesser therefore their paycheck is a little bit bigger so they're getting to the end of the year now it's time to file and they're like wait a second i'm supposed to get this big refund and they're not getting that, and they're getting really mad, which I totally understand, because many people, a lot of people, maybe you, my, at different times, myself included, you do a little financial planning around your tax refund. You're like, oh, I need that. Oh, thank God it's, uh, you know, February 15th. Yeah. I need that refund. Now, a financial planner will tell you, you know what, you're actually being kind of not smart. What you're doing by overwithholding is you're giving the federal government a tax-free loan. An interest-free loan of your money—you're lending the federal government your money, and they're giving it back to you without any interest, yeah. I didn't mean tax-free, interest-free—and and you're like, oh, thanks, thanks for the refund. Well, thanks it's your for money. me my money with. back. Doesn't matter. People are like, I expected my twenty-one hundred and fifty dollars. I don't have it, and and now I'm kind of screwed. And I get that. How about yourself? You think? Uh, what, do you, what do you what do you think about these folks who are outraged, saying hashtag GOP tax scam, And in fact, many of them just just start doing the arithmetic.
0: I, I don't know enough about taxes <laughs> to speak in any sort of expertise on this, so I'm not going to. I am going to say, I think we all knew that the president's tax cuts were not going to benefit the middle class. That was not what they were designed to do. Um, and no matter what, no matter if you get an extra $5, like it does, it feels better when you get it into a lump sum. Perhaps what this... What it is a lesson in, I think, is the administration, the federal government, probably could have done themselves a favor by doing some communications planning early on, early on, and rolling this out and setting some expectations and starting to talk to people about this months ago.
1: I think you're right about that. I, I but I will, I will only gently push back because there were, there, I don't know if it was a public relations campaign or just, you know. Public service news stories that said, "Hey, by the way, different people are going to experience different levels of withholding, and their refunds may may be off, and they may be surprised." And of course, everyone forgot about it. Yeah, I and, think and, it and the IRS been... might have been busy informing us over the past, you know, uh, forty five days. Except they were shut down most of. The, <laughs> most they were of that time. <laughs> I think.
0: But I think this was a long game plan. They yeah. should have, from the second that they were implemented, probably should have started doing some daily PR reminders of educating the public. And they probably could have, you know, they still would have had people that were angry. But if people were expecting it, you know, it's always better to get in front of these things. Yeah, and uh, you know, people might not be quite as mad if they knew that if they really realistically knew what was
1: what to expect. Fair enough. People are outraged, but you got to do the math. <laughs> Bottom line. All right, Kayan, thanks. All right, up next, Suzanne Morrison, O'Neill Associates, Vice President, Veteran Media Observer. Suzanne, good to have you. Thanks, Cosmo. Always happy to be here. As always. I'm not sure if I'd call this a movement. It's certainly a dynamic within the American media. We are seeing... Organized labor right. take hold in different media organizations probably as a defensive mechanism or a defense mechanism uh, because of the trend of the media business. But but let's talk about this and uh, give us a sense of what's happening in different types of media organizations right now.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think in particular uh, this week we saw a number of different kinds of uh, media outlets Start an effort to unionize, and it's it's across the board. I mean, one of which is Buzzfeed, which is a major digital media outlet, um, WBUR, which is a public radio station here in Boston, a major public radio station, and the Hartford Current, which is part of Tribune Media. So I think what's very interesting there is that you're seeing it in in very different kinds of media outlets, but it is clear that it's partly, I think. Um, a, a normal reaction to the contraction and uh, the turbulence that you see in media right now. I thought what was really interesting about the Buzzfeed example is, you know, according to the New York Times, um, Buzzfeed's revenue grew by fifteen percent last year, and yet you still saw these massive cuts go take place in Buzzfeed. So it becomes this interesting question about. What are these media owners trying to do with these outlets? And I, I wonder for some of these uh, reporters and some of these journalists who are starting to unionize if they see the unionization as a way of steering those, those owners to think about the civic mission of a, of a media outlet. Um, but the other thought I, the other thing I found very interesting is BUR's unionization effort seems to be about culture. And um, I think a lot of people are aware that there was the investigation of Tom Ashbrook last year, and that seems to have emerged as a real issue, um, and the employees there see unionization as a way or an organization as a way of um, addressing some of the cultural issues. And it's just interesting that you're seeing not one specific issue arising, even though the obvious around you know, protecting jobs is clearly part of it. Yeah.
1: You know, it's funny. Just from the cultural perspective, just about every workplace and employee protection and benefit and, and and feature of the workplace that 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 is a is some sort of protection for the worker has some roots at some point in history in in, mm-hmm. in American the American labor That's movement right. and, and, and organized labor. And, and 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 maybe there is a recognition in the case of say B U R where well. This one area has never been covered, and, and, and it needs yeah. to be, and, and, and therefore we want to have a real voice, and we want to have an organized uh, employee union. I think the other piece might be as simple as, you know, for so many decades, media organizations, um, large companies like Tribune, the profit margins they enjoyed were, were, were humongous. Right. And so even now, even though you said in the past year this company, Tribune, has, has seen an increase in revenue, Maybe they want to build sustainability by saying, we we need to get our profit margin back to that one of those comfortable levels where it used to be double digits. It was like a huge comfort zone. And, you know, there's only one way to do that, and that's to keep sort of cutting until we – and maybe it's a reaction to that. But I I find it fascinating because we went through, including right here in Boston, Mm -hmm. a a, a period of time, you know, 10 years ago or less where – some of the major um, news organizations in Boston, including the Boston Globe, there was an existential crisis. Absolutely, there, there was. A, a, we both a, remember it well. Remember it well. there's a crisis <laughs> as to which a newspaper would even be allowed yep. to survive, yep. because of the union contracts they had in place. So, so I think it's you know I, I, I think it's very telling about where we stand right now in the evolution of the media business, and quite frankly, if if you're an advocate for organized labor then this is a really good thing to seize on and say, hey, you know what? We are helping this industry's workforce right. protect itself and survive in 2019.
2: And I also, at the end of the day, wonder how it impacts coverage of labor issues in general if you have more members of the media who are actually a member of the union. That's a question that I guess we'll
1: see going forward. It really is. Yep. All right. Suzanne Morris, great insights as always. Thanks so much. Thanks, Cosmo. All right. Another action-packed episode's in the books that's going to do it for this week's edition of 321 Go. Our program is recorded in Studio 10A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room at our building in the heart of Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero.
0: Up next, an interview with Joshua Craft.
1: All right, up next on OA on Air, we're happy to have in the studio with us Josh Kraft. He's the president of the New England Patriots Charitable Foundation and also the Nicholas president and CEO of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston. Josh, it's great to have you here. Thanks for coming and joining us on OA on Air.
3: Cosmo, thank you for having me. Brooke, thank you for having me.
1: Excellent. Um, look, I can't resist right off the top just because it's been that kind of year uh, for the New England Patriots, and by the way, as we sit here, the victory parade parades (plural). They end right out here outside of our building. It becomes this massive street party. It's pretty amazing. So, uh, it's it, it's it's quite a scene whenever the Patriots win the Super Bowl, and it's pretty exciting to be able to say that we've won six Super Bowls, meaning the meaning the New England Patriots. So, member of the Kraft family, part of the organization. What does it feel like? to be that close and, and that much a part of a Super Bowl victory, have it literally be a family experience.
3: Well, it's so great being a family experience. You know, my dad used to take us to the games at the old stadium on the benches years ago. But really, it's just so incredible to see the turnout, the support. Uh, this was the biggest parade ever. And people were saying, you know, there was some chatter that people weren't into the Patriots as much. But I'm going to tell you, there was, almost, there was just about 2 million people out on the street and it's so gratifying. I see the time my dad and my brother Jonathan and uh, put into everything and it's just so gratifying, record-breaking numbers at the sixth parade, which tells you it never gets old. And you know, one of the great things is we were talking earlier today actually and it's so unifying. There's all kinds of people out on the street, race, religion, ethnicity, socioeconomics, all celebrating the Patriots winning the Super Bowl, and I think that's what's most special and important to my family.
1: That's terrific. It really was. Um, it's funny, you, you mentioned that there was a story in the Boston Globe. John Henry actually renounced the story about, you know, are people sort of uh, fatigued by Super Bowl victories. Cer- certainly not the case, judging by the biggest victory parade in the uh, in, in the history of Boston, and, and, and quite a day it was. Let me ask you, in years when the Patriots have been this successful, uh, and really, it's been a whole generation, uh, well over a decade of great success. But when when the Patriots win a Super Bowl, does does it create more demand or interest in the Patriots' charitable foundation? Do you experience more requests for assistance or support? Um, th- th- does it elevate the foundation on the radar of organizations that might re- might rely yeah, on?
3: Yeah, uh, you know, there's always a lot of requests, but I think you get a lot more player requests and uh, maybe the trophies coming out, which we only, we really don't do. We do once in a great while, but it's really the players' requests and, um, and people, of course, are excited, and that's why there were two million people on the street without the fans, that's a key part of the success.
1: Yeah, now I want to talk about the Boys and Girls Club in a minute, but just one more on the foundation and its origins and sort of what kind of organizations it supports. I know you have one major annual initiative, um, but really what's the work it does and, and, and how does it provide support to to various organizations and, and, and service providers?
3: You know, uh, one of the things that was important to my family in buying the team was not only winning on the field, but winning off the field. And through the Patriots Foundation and the community work we do, we try to win on the field, off the field, just as much as or more than we win on the field. And there's events such as, you know, the morning, of the, uh, the day of the Super Bowl, we did a Super Bowl party over at St. Francis House uh, for people to come in, eat, you know, celebrate the team, et cetera. We do big, our, our biggest uh, annual, not our biggest, but one of the most important events we do, and if you ask my dad or my mother of all the philanthropy they've been involved with, one of their favorite things is the Myra Craft Community MVP Awards, where we recognize 26 exemplary volunteers throughout New England, uh, as young as 15, you know, teen, 12, 13-year-olds to we've awarded 92-year-olds and 96-year-olds, and they can work they, they can work in nonprofits as volunteers, have started their own uh, nonprofits. I remember there was one gentleman in his 90s who worked at the Perkins School for the Blind who put together adaptable furniture. He had done it after he retired for years and years at Perkins. Another was uh, a woman who went to the Asperger's Association of New England for support because uh, she – really couldn't hold a job, she was unsure of herself and so on. And in her short year, she was leading groups, she was speaking on panels about adults with Asperger's and living with it and really creating uh, a voice for that. And we've awarded hundreds of people like that uh, through the Community MVP Awards from all six New England states. And that's so important uh, because really it's people and volunteers uh, that continue to drive the community forward and make our community stronger.
1: That's um that's great so that that's that's your signature That's, the that's signature our signature
3: event. event and there's so many other events from, you know, hospital visits with the players to the turkey giveaway baskets we've been doing at Goodwill Memorial for 20 25 years. You know, to the Patriots marathon team where that supports the community MVP awards but we also give out the children's holiday party for kids from shelters where they interact with the players. We do raffles around every year. You know, we're so fortunate to go to this, to be such a great team that gets to compete in the playoffs. We do uh, Super Bowl and playoff ticket raffles, and we turn that money around and use it to build playgrounds and communities that need new playgrounds. So we just, we like to engage not only We engage our players, we engage our coaches, we engage our season ticket holders and our staff, and it's so important for us to use success uh, off the field as just a greater measuring tool as success on the field.
1: Now, Josh, your career has been devoted to delivering human services and building communities. It's something you've done all over the city of Boston for more than 25 years. Would you say Boston has a better, or does Boston have a better safety net today Individuals, children, and families who need help than when you were first starting out? Just overall.
3: Well, I'd say my experience in the city of Boston, I spent 15 years in Chelsea as well, but my experience in the city of Boston with uh, nonprofits, with community leaders, with corporate support has always been fantastic. I mean, this is a city where the corporate Community, the political leadership, the community leaders, and the nonprofit leaders really, for the most part, can put ego aside and come together to do right in a, whenever the city is in a time of need. I mean, obviously, the marathon bombing is a perfect example of that, where a bunch of business leaders within 24, 36 hours turned around, created a great fund. Uh, the police were involved. And I think another great asset we have here in Boston is we've had great. Great leadership with the Boston Police Department, especially in the last 15-plus years. You know, Ed Davis, Billy Evans, and now Willie Gross, completely and utterly believe—completely and authentically believe in the power of community in community policing and getting involved at the community level, understanding the nonprofit, understanding what drives— young people and what young people need. And I think that safety net is something that goes uncelebrated here in the city and it really needs to be celebrated.
1: Okay, we're talking to Josh Kraft of the New England Patriots Charitable Foundation as well as the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston. Josh, can you talk a little bit about the programming and services offered citywide by the Boys and Girls Clubs as well as maybe over the next five years or so or whatever your longer or midterm growth plan is, growth, expansion, what the goals are for the for the Boys and Girls Club in terms of initiatives and things you're doing?
3: Well, I'll start, Cosmo, with the second part. And we're actually in the midst of a strategic planning process right now at Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston. So, and we're really wrestling with, do we want to expand or do we want to go deeper with the kids we're serving now? I, I think they'll probably, I don't know where it's going to turn out, maybe, focus more on depth and a little less on expansion but we will see but we're working on that but at Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston we like to say that what we do at Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston is we address something that we all talk about in this country and that's the achievement gap but really the achievement gap is a symptom of a bigger problem and that's the opportunity gap and addressing the opportunity gap is what we've been doing for over 125 years at Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston. And every single kid that walks on the door of one of our buildings, no matter what their socioeconomic, race, religious background, family of origin, has equal access to opportunity as the kid they're walking into the building with. And that's what we've been doing for 125 years. And we do that through programming in six core areas, leadership, life skills, education, arts, Technology and sports, fitness, and recreation, and within each of those, there's unique programs that can uh, small uh, unique programs. Whether it's a book club, a science club, a soccer league, a yoga class, a Zumba class, uh, our tech team, a robotics team in technology, and so many other different programs. And these opportunities we hope uh, are su- supporting the community today but then also building a stronger community in the future. Uh, you know, 80% of Boys and Girls Clubs nationally say they're involved in their communities because of what they learned at the Boys and Girls Club. And, you know, it's, it's the proof is in the pudding. The chair of our board, Bruce Jacobs, uh, from Westfield Capital, is an alum of a Boys and Girls Club from Washington State.
1: Yeah, That's a, it's a remarkable track record. It really is. Um, all right, so finally, Josh, you, you had a pretty interesting piece not long ago on the Boston Globe, and you, and you wrote, I felt, uh, in very motivating language about individuals taking action toward social justice, something we hear a lot about. Uh, it, it, but instead of just talking about it, um, it, it you, you spoke to taking action, you know. Um, doing something at the community level, maybe even just just in your neighborhood, uh, that hit home with me a lot. It, it made me think about the time I spend, you know, talking about things on uh, Facebook with uh, friends, and time I could maybe be spend in my own community doing something. Talk a little, bit, talk a little bit about that that piece, but also just kind of the idea behind that, because we do hear a lot about social justice. People talk a lot about it, uh, and maybe there's time th- they can spend yeah, more time
3: taking. You know, that. there's a lot of you know, everybody talks about social justice and, you know, I'm biased, but I like to say true social justice is providing access to opportunity to anyone and everyone, regardless of, again, what I said about Boys and Girls Club, regardless of their socioeconomic status, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, whatever it may be. And a lot of people have co-opted the term social justice and they talk about it on Twitter, they talk about it on Facebook, but And, you know, and sometimes there's probably some legit, there's definitely legitimacy to what they're saying. But instead of talking about it and uh, spending so much time debating what it is or why it's not happening, it'd be great if people just, you know, got out and did more. Whatever works for them, hosting a block party, getting to know their neighbors, uh, volunteering. One from Maine who runs a health center for the home was... and it's incredible. She took something and they they serve homeless people free of charge with first class health care. And then a young boy who did something around the uh, shooting at uh, in Sandy Connecticut, Hook. Sandy Hook, Connecticut yeah. shooting. And, you know, these are people that saw something and did something about it. And obviously, you know, social media and all, it serves a purpose. And if you can say things that get people motivated on social media to go out and make a difference, that's great. But I think sometimes all of us uh, just get tired of hearing people complain, and we'd rather them go out and do something, do something. Yeah. yeah. And um, look, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but uh, I try not to complain much, at least publicly. So. <laughs>
1: It's a, you know what? The greatest and the most uh, powerful messages are always the most simple and straight, and that really is one. Right. All it's right.
3: better to show people, not to tell people.
1: Indeed. We've been talking with Josh Kraft of the New England Patriots Charitable Foundation, as well as the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it.
3: Thank you, Cosmo. Thank you, Brooke.
1: All right. Take care. Thanks.
0: And now, Two Minutes with Tom. Are you ready?
4: Two Minutes with Cayenne?
0: No, it doesn't have the same ring to it. Two Minutes with Tom. Hi, Cayenne. Hi, Tom. Welcome back to Two Minutes with Tom.
4: Away on air. It's great to be back.
0: So this week, oversight hearings have begun.
4: Important oversight hearings have begun.
0: In Washington, D.C. We had
4: Jerry Nadler, who is the chair of the Judiciary Committee, uh, bring in the acting attorney general, Whitaker, and uh, it was basically to understand exactly where it was he came from, what his background was, what his preparation was to become the acting attorney general in the in the United States. And uh, it was really to find out what the relationships were between him and the administration, the Trump administration, or the before that, the Trump campaign, but how he matriculated to such a high position in life without having any experience at the at DOJ, at the at the Department of Judiciary, and
0: uh, all very good questions.
4: Yeah, it's it's a very good question, and I think it's legitimate. And he was a little hostile, and then I think he calmed down during the course of the hearings. I, I don't know that he gave the answers that were you know as straightforward um, as as members of that committee, both Republican and Democratic, wanted to hear them. But it was what it was, and we have coming up other oversight uh, committee hearings coming up and I think it's important for people to be reminded that the the responsibilities of a man a woman in Congress are to legislate and do oversight they are the watchdog agency for the other operating departments or divisions of government and um, that's their constitutional responsibility and it's it's a very important one Adam Schiff the congressman from California who's the chair of the of the Intelligence Committee is going to begin conducting hearings, oversight hearings, himself uh, over the next weeks. And they will be trying to find out exactly what the relationship, if there was one, uh, between the Trump campaign, uh, the Trump organization, and now the Trump administration, have been or were, were with with the Russian government as they were hacking away at the political engines in the United States both within our states as well as our federal government during the course of the election in 2016.
0: And in 2018 there was a a lot of talk, we talked about it on our podcast, about the blue wave coming into the legislature, why that was so important and these oversight hearings are a huge reason as to why it was so important for Democrats to take back the House and sort of bring back that balance of power but because people wanted to see oversight hearings they wanted to see the president's tax returns all of these things that we've kind of been waiting for for the last couple months um but what is it people have complained that it's taken too long
4: well they have complained it's taken too long but and and now they're getting around to it but as as the over uh, as the oversight hearings before 2018 uh were were chaired by members of the republican party uh, you know they came across as very political my only hope is that as, as Jerry Nadler in Judiciary and Adam Schiff on the Intelligence Committee as chairs and Democratic leaders in those committees, we, we tries to keep it as transparent as possible and attempts to keep the politics out of those hearings as best they possibly can.
0: Well, stay tuned.
4: It's, it's important. That, that equality of, of voice, tone, and, and trying to find out answers to questions is really very important. Thanks, Cayenne.
0: Thanks, Tom. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or our own O'Neill & Associates website. Talk to you next week.